Well, hey, friends. Welcome to the Everyday Mulemanship Podcast. Uh, glad you're hanging out with me today. It's a good one. Hanging out here in Spring City, Utah. Um, doing a clinic here at our new place, and it is going just amazing. Uh, shoot, the weather's just brilliant. Blue skies, about 70 degrees, and amazing people here. And I'll be talking next week about the debrief of this semi-private clinic, so you can stay tuned for that a little later on. But for this episode, I'm going to talk about our recent four-day clinic in Spokane, Washington. Actually, Nine Mile Falls, Washington, to be specific. And man, it was a great time, so really looking forward to telling you about that. Um, but before we get started, I need to thank... Our amazing sponsors, we're so grateful for these folks that uh, take good care of us and keep this podcast running. Uh, first off, Mules and More Magazine. Corey Daniels over there does a ter- terrific job. Go to mulesmore.com. Also, Roman Homes. Uh, if you're looking for a good wall tent, if you're into packing, hunting, fishing, you like to get in the backcountry, Pack up those mules and hit the trail this summer. You need to get a Roman home in that pack. Uh, I mean, they've got some some great tents made out of awesome materials. Uh, Go to romanhome.com to check them out. Also, I want to thank our amazing uh, saddle maker sponsor, Colt Nairing, Colt Saddlery. If you want a good ride, want a good saddle, you need to check out Colt Saddlery. You can find them on social media. Just look up Colt Salary on Facebook, and he'll be there for you. And lastly, but definitely not least, we're so grateful for Western Mule Magazine. I've been writing for Western Mule Magazine for, I don't know, quite a few years now. Got lots of articles out there. And uh, anyways, Ben and Anita do a great job. So thank you, Western Mule Magazine, for all your support of this podcast. Everyday Mulemanship with Ty Evans. So let's talk about Spokane. First of all, four-day clinics, that is the way to go. Um, I love the four-day clinics. It, it's its a longer week. Um, people get a little bit more tired. Mules get more tired for sure. People get a little bit wore out. Uh, <clears throat> but I tell you what, the fourth-day changes are worth the wait. I'm telling you. Most of our clinics are three days. Most of them. And it seems that third day we finally start making some good progress. Things are, are looking pretty good and rocking and rolling. And I just hope that you go home and you keep working from there. I hope that you go home and continue that process, getting those changes. But I think most people go home, they take a few days off. And I don't blame them because they're probably wore out. Or they probably got to catch up on, you know, the work they left at home. They, they need family time. They've been away. Uh, they got to work on the house, work on the farm, the ranch, take care of the cows, whatever. I know you guys are busy. But if, if you could just continue on with that process after you come to a three-day clinic, it'd be just amazing. However, this Spokane clinic, being four days, gave the, everybody the opportunity to, to work that fourth day and get the changes that fourth day. And uh, it's just super amazing um, the progress that people made. It was really cool. So we had quite the quite the diversity. Um, this clinic, 
it may actually be the, the most horses I've ever had in a clinic. It was about 50-50 with the mules, I think. Maybe there's a couple more mules and horses, but it was just about half and half, horses and mules, and we had one donkey. Uh, you know, and it's kind of fun to see that um, diversity at a clinic. You know, forever there's been so many goofy myths out there about how different mules are from horses, and I think, I think people really want them to be different. And yeah, they are different in some ways, but when it comes to the stuff that we're working on, teaching these maneuvers, uh, going through our, our checklist, you know, we go through that checklist. The checklist doesn't change with ear size. I don't care if you're riding a short ear, that'd be a horse, or a long ear, that'd be a donkey, or a medium ear, that'd be a mule. I don't care which one you're riding, um, the checklist doesn't change. We got to do the same stuff with all three things okay horse mule or donkey we do the same stuff um the other thing that i think is pretty important for people to know is if you really want to be good with mules every anybody that i've ever met that is really good with mules honestly they are really good with horses and donkeys too um or at least they understand horses and donkeys really well if you really really want to understand a mule you need to understand horses and donkeys. That's their parents. You need to know about them. It makes a difference, these traits. Um, it's common for somebody to know a lot about horses and then get into mules, but they don't maybe don't know much about the donkeys. The more you can learn about it, each one of them, I mean, it'll help you. I'm just telling you. So it was pretty fun to see the diversity at this clinic, having so many horses and, and having a donkey there as well, and um, and then all the great mules. Um, it was, it was really great. So a few highlights that I want to share. Um, number one, uh, Robert Eversall, the trailmeister. If you're listening out there, I'm proud of you, buddy. Uh, if you guys don't know who Robert Eversall is, you need to go back and listen to, oh shoot, I can't remember what number of podcast he was on, but I had him as a guest. He's a trailmeister. He's got a website. Look up Trailmeister on Google. It'll take you right there. Um, he writes for Western Mule Magazine as well. He just finished a book. Anyways, he is our amazing host there at Spokane. Him and his wife, Celeste, they do a great job putting that clinic on for us. Super grateful for Robert and Celeste. But I've been trying to get Robert to lope this mule for a few years now. Um, he's got a, a little mule named Coco. It's actually an Icelandic mule. Now, if you've been around Icelandics, you'll know that they can walk faster than they can lope. And it's the same thing with, with this little horse or this little mule. Uh, she can definitely walk faster than she can lope. But Robert's been working at this. And Robert's also been through a few wrecks and stuff trying to get recovered. And anyways, um, probably one of the top highlights was finally getting Robert and Coco to lope. Now, there's a lesson here, though. And this is the lesson I want to share. You know, if you have a really hard time getting something done with your mule, if you have a hard time getting them to lope, you have a hard time getting them to cross that water, you have a hard time getting them to climb up on that rock or follow that cow or make that turn or stop or back or pick up a lead, whatever. If you, ha if you have a hard time doing that, Usually, you should probably practice it again. That's not always the case, but usually you should practice it again. 
And sometimes you wish you didn't do anymore. Sometimes you wish you'd just settle with the first round and leave it alone. Now, how do you know when to move on and when to not move on? I don't know. I make that mistake all the time. And this story I'm about to tell you is an example of me making that mistake just recently. So Robert finally got this mule to lope, got Coco to lope. Um, we set it up, actually put Celeste down in one corner and had Robert lope towards Celeste, who was on uh, Coco's best buddy, Minning, and uh, loping towards that horse that made it easier for Coco to pick up the lope. So we get that done once, okay? And everybody's cheering, everybody's happy for Robert. Woohoo, good job. And uh, okay, take a rest, Robert, because it took him quite a bit of energy to get that first round. Give him a rest for a little while, and we're going to try it again because that's what I believe in that moment that we should do. Well, he goes to try it again. And Robert is pretty much gassed out. He's pretty much done. And um, I wish I would have read that better and not asked him to ask Coco to lope again. I wish I would have noticed that because I said, okay, Robert, your turn again. Let's go ahead and lope. And um, turned him loose. And he tried and tried and tried and tried and tried and couldn't get it done. And finally I said, all right, well, try again another day. And I gave him the advice that, you know, to work at this lope, it'd be better if he was out in the mountains, you know, and and I said, set it up like this. Have Minning, this horse that Celeste is riding, have her ride that horse way down that trail, way ahead, and you hang back and wait till Minning is 100 yards or 200 yards ahead, and then kick, uh, kick Coco up and get her into that lope when she's going towards her buddy, and you have this long trail, and also out on the trail, it's easier to steer the animal because usually you're funneled in. I mean, I don't know how trails are wherever you are in the world. I know we have listeners all over the world on all the continents. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know how the trails are for you. But the trails around where Robert's at, where he's going to be riding, are wooded pretty well. Pine, pine trees, aspens. Um, so he's going to be funneled in in this trail. And uh, it's not going to be too hard for him to to steer the animal. And then all he has to worry about is getting the meal sped up and getting it to lope. So that was the advice I gave him before I told him or after I told him he better back off and quit a little bit because he wasn't going to get it done. He was wore out. And, and that's a big part of it. So back to the lesson. <clears throat> if If it's hard for you to get something done, Hard, hard for you to cross that stream. Hard for you to get that lope. Hard for you to cross the bridge. Generally speaking, you should go back and do it again. But if you're if you're burned up, if you're tired, if you're wore out, well, you're done. Don't don't worry. Don't pick that fight again. Don't ask that mule to do something that you're not prepared to hang in there with them and help them through it. And also, do your best. To make sure the animal is ready for it mentally. Um, that's a, the other part of it. Now, this meal that Robert was on, he'd, he'd, he'd get into the trot, and he's trotting, 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 and all of a sudden this mule would slam on his brakes, like hard, all four brakes. And it, it'd want to send Robert over the front end. I mean, every time he hit the brakes. Now, Robert stuck to it like Velcro. He did a really good job riding this, this mule. But um, it's also clear that the mule you know, mentally was, was really checking out there. It didn't, it didn't want to lope and it wasn't interested in loping. And that makes it that much more of a challenge. So anyways, I give him some instruction there and hopefully 
Robert, if you're out there listening, buddy, I hope and wish you the best uh, to be able to work through this transition. I have no doubt when I come back and uh, ride with Robert again, he'll have this meal loping better for sure. Um, something else that I really want to point out too, it, it, it's, and you guys have heard me talk about it many times um, on previous episodes, but you know, I never know how many of you are new listeners to this episode or not. So I'm going to I'm going to hit on it again because I also think it's important to 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 talk about these things. So um, there was a, a, a fjord horse there named Andy. Um, and this horse was interesting. So um, the rider of this horse, a good a friend of ours named Wendy, um, the first day she gets on this horse and is out there in the mulemanship one class and the horse is so tight. I mean, it's butt was pinched so stinking tight. Um, geez, uh, the, the, the horse was really nervous. Every time somebody would ride near it or behind it, the horse would just, I call it grabbing their butt where they just pinch their butt and they kind of tuck it down kind of like a dog tucking its tail between its legs, just kind of grabbing their butt like that. And this horse would do that and kind of want to take off. Now, the good thing, if you're going to have a horse that wants to run off, uh, a fjord is a good choice because a fjord just, they just don't run. They're not, they're not made to run fast. I mean, uh, those squatty little legs, they're, they're not running horses. There's a reason you don't see those in, in the big races. Okay. So anyways, uh, but this horse, sure enough, does take off with her a couple of times. And I'm just talking small scoots across the arena. And of course we're in the arena, so it's not like, you know, if if you're going to ride a runaway, you might as well be in the arena. Uh, Where are you going to go, right? They're not going to go anywhere. So you just kind of stay with it. But, and she did a good job trying to handle it, but Wendy was really tense and really tight and really worried. And the horse was the same way. And this horse had a hard time just letting this tension down. The horse just couldn't let the tension out and relax and come down. Like he would never soften up mentally and, and come down. So, we actually um, had Wendy move to the foundation class, so that was it for her riding. Um, well, she let me take the back. She rode the first day. On the second day, she was riding around, and she was so Wendy was so tight and anxious, and I could see it coming through in the horse too. So basically, the horse and Wendy they're bouncing their anxiety off of one another, and and every time it bounces, it picks up speed, and so this anxiety is growing and growing between them, <clears throat> and I see that coming. And there's a few things I do when I see people have that much anxiety. Often I will tell them something um, that they need to do to get them off of the saddle. So I told, and this, and it's always good advice, by the way. I always tell them something very informative, but I want to get them on the ground without saying, get off your horse. I want you on the ground. So I told Wendy something that she needed to work on anyways. I said, you know, I noticed um, it looks like you're constantly reaching for your stirrups, you, you know, and she was um, reaching for her stirrups all the time. I said, why don't you go ahead and hop off your, your horse there and lengthen your stirrups out. And then once I had her off, she said, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're right. I am always reaching for my stirrups. So she got off the horse, put her stirrups up a a hole. And I said, why don't you do groundwork for a little bit until that horse just relaxes a little bit more. She's okay. Yeah, I'll do that. And she was very willing. And I think she felt good to get off. It was like a, like a relief to her to be off the horse. Um, and, uh, so she did groundwork for a while and then I told her, let's go ahead and do 
the groundwork class. So let's move you from the rising class to the groundwork class. And she was absolutely relieved. And um, you could see the difference in her tension. The next day when she came to do groundwork, knowing that she didn't have to ride the horse in the class was absolutely relieving to her. And that helped her relax. And then, so the second, or excuse me, the third and the fourth day of the class, of the classes, she was absolutely relaxed and did her groundwork well. And while she was on the ground, I said, okay, this is what we need to do. We need to help this horse come down and be able to self-regulate and, and relax, uh, you know, through these things because the horse just hangs on to the tension. Now, Wendy, uh, Wendy is a wonderful human, human being, you guys. She's just a sweetheart. Uh, you're not going to meet a better human, um, than Wendy and she's just so great. Uh, but she'd go up there and, and she would pet on the horse a lot and like, and, and kiss it and nuzzle it and hold it. And I'm not dogging that. There's nothing wrong with that. If any of you have ever been to one of my clinics, you guys see how much I pet on my mules. I'm petting my mules all over from, from nose to tail down their legs. I I'm touching the mules all the time. You'll see me doing that. So I'm not in any way dogging you for petting on and loving on your mules because that's me. Uh, however, when your animal is stressed and you just ask them to do something that really stresses them out, and for this horse, uh, the groundwork was stressful enough for it. And so that being so stressful, you get the job done, you get them to do the move, and then you need to back off and just leave them alone and give them a chance to reset, self-regulate, come down from that pressure, that anxiety, the fear, uh, what whatever that is, that arousal. Let them come down. Uh, and it, while they're coming down, you got to leave them alone. Sometimes going in there and touching them, petting them, uh, surely kissing them, trying to, especially anything on their muzzle, um, touching them there. There's so much feel for them, uh, feeling for them in that muzzle and those those little whiskers of theirs are like little fingers. Um, don't touch them. Just, just let them be and let them process what you just did. And I told her this and, you know, um, she's like, yeah, you, you're right. I, I need to just let him come down and let him find his way down on his own here and not get in his way, basically. Uh, so that was a, a big piece there. You know, first of all, you, you need to up the situation. That's something else that I told her that, okay, when you're working, make sure you're, you're, you're engaging this, this horse, make sure you're engaging, um, the mind and you you are accelerating your questions. So it causes the animal to causes the animal to be pushed a little bit. You, you got to get into that optimal learning frame of, of mind. Um, and you know, uh, all the credit from, for this brain stuff, goes to what I've learned from Dr. Stephen Peters and, and Martin Black um, and Sarah Schlody. You know, I've been taking some some classes from them, and it's pretty dang cool, this stuff. Uh, you learn about the brain. But it's so critical that you 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 push just enough to get them to that level where they're seeking answers, and then you back off and you let them know that they found the answer and you give them that time to soak and you leave them alone. That's it's finding that whole balance. When, when do you push and when do you back off and how long do you leave them be? Um, finding that balance is crucial and it's different for every animal. So 
you know, feel free to, when you're working your, your mule, your horse, feel free to experiment and play around with it and, and sort it out and, and see what you can find. You might push too far. Well, take note, don't do it again. Uh, you might mess up and that's okay. And that segues me right into another, <clears throat> another participant that I'd like to, to mention here and um, we had another, another participant first time coming to one of our, our clinics. And, um, th- the first two days she said, I don't even know how many times she said it way too many times. I just don't want to mess her up. I don't want to screw the mule up. And finally I said, go ahead and mess your mule up. Go ahead and make a mistake. You need to be willing to make mistakes. It's okay to experiment and, and figure it out. And I said, you might you know, you might not, uh, do your very best on this meal, but you might learn a lot on this meal. And then the next meal or horse you work, you're going to do better. And then the next you're going to do better. I promise you the mules that I'm, that I'm working today, this week are, are going to be better than the mules I've worked in the past because we know more, we have more experience. Um, if you've been to one of my clinics, I always say, Hey, today's the, this is the best day of your life. And I say, you're, you're wiser than you've ever been. You know more than you've ever known. Today is the best day of your life. And I really believe that. And But it comes from getting experience from your past, you know, your, your past time with your animals. You know, learn what did you learn yesterday and what would you, you learn today? And, and that's all super crucial. So, um. Anyways, so she said over and over the first couple of days that she's so worried about messing up the animal. She's super stressed about, you know, making a mistake. And I said, you got to start somewhere. You you have to be willing to to put forth a little effort. And, you know, so what if you do it wrong a time or two? Uh, you know, one of my favorite uh, phrases that has been coined in horsemanship, and it comes from uh, Tom Dorrance, um, you know, if you ever read, if you ever read True Unity, you'll get a lot out of it. I highly recommend True Unity by Tom Dorrance. But in there, he talks about this phrase: observe, remember, and compare. So, for me, that's your permission right there to go ahead and experiment and see what you can get done. Experiment with. Um, you know, well, okay, when I do this, how's that work out? When I do this, how's that work out? And you got to realize that all the stuff that we've ever done, all the stuff that we do with these animals, it's been figured out by somebody. Somebody experimented with this and or had a little insight, had a little little thought, a little maybe it was inspiration, um, which I believe a lot in. Uh, you get a little inspiration. Uh, and it leads you to making these choices with these animals and trying this or trying that. And you can learn a lot. Um, you know, and I am very much a traditionalist. Uh, I like to make bridal mules in the great basin buckaroo tradition, but I'm also willing to experiment different little angles. How about, what if I move my rein here? What if I move my rein there? What if I move my leg here, my seat here? What if I lift my shoulder up? What if I put this shoulder down? But you, it, it's okay to experiment and uh, work. You know, you know, try something new and see see how the meal responds to it. Don't be so worried about messing them up. And if you mess them up, 
If you make a mistake, that's okay. Just don't make the same mistake again. You should be too busy making new mistakes to make the same mistake again. That's another little quote that I love, you know. Uh, so go out there and, and play with those critters and, and make mistakes. It's, it's great. So <clears throat> those are a couple little highlights there. You know, something else I want to mention is we had, we had four people there that were in the Hackmore or I should say four animals there that were in the Hackmore. There were <clears throat> there were three horses there and, and one mule that were in the Hackmore progression. And that's really cool to me. You know, we've been doing clinics. We just hit the 10-year mark a few weeks ago. And, uh, man, it's cool to see so many in the Hackmore. I, uh, I really hope that someday I, ha I have enough of you guys out there that are working to make a bridal mule that I can actually have like a bridal mule class, you know, where, where we got them in the terrain or we got them straight up and we can work on stuff there, um, and get past the snaffle bit and get past the hackamore and, and, um, move on to those things. That's something I'd, I'd really love to be able to do. Uh, so it was pretty neat seeing folks there in the hackamore. And I, I love talking about the hackamore. I love talking about gear. Um, I love helping people work, with with the different gear and, and all that kind of stuff it's 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 really amazing so it was fun to to help people work those different angles and and learn how to pick up on their rain you know one one thing that we all need to know about using the hackamore is you 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 have to use the hackamore the way you should use the snaffle bit you have to use the hack more the way you should use the snaffle bit. So your angles, it's really important to treat it as a lateral tool. And it's a fantastic lateral tool. And uh, a lot of people say, okay, well, Ty, I really don't want to use a bit on my animal. And and I'm whatever, whatever you guys want to do, go for it. Um, I like to make bridal meals. That's what I'm into. That's what I teach. But some people, you know, want to be a little different and want to do their own thing. And, and some people say, you know, I just don't ever want to use a bit. Okay. Well, the hackamore is by far the superior option for if you're going to use anything bitless, for sure. That's the superior option. I mean, th there's there's no other tool out there that that ha offers the the balance and the refinement that a hackamore does when it in regards to something without without a bit. Um, so, anyways, uh, we're going to take a quick break right now here, and um, when I come back, uh, we're going to talk about. Um, a little bit more, a couple more highlights from the Spokane Clinic, and then I have some questions from some listeners. So we'll be right back. Thank you. All right, we're back. Thanks for being here with me today, you guys. Um, all right, well, I was just talking about some highlights from Spokane, talking about the, the Hackamore folks that came, and it's really fun, you know, and... Um, it's also something I, I got to say, it is really cool having so many people there in the snaffle bit. You know, um, I appreciate the people that read their participant letters and show up in, in the appropriate equipment. And I get a lot of questions about the snaffle bit, you know, and why do I got to do this? Why I got to do that? Uh, you know, people can use whatever they want. There's all kinds of tools out there. There's all kinds of things. But 
The hackamore is ancient. The snaffle bit is ancient. These bridle bits and this two-rain process, this is ancient. It's been around a long time. And I don't feel that it, it, there's been really any gear that has improved upon those, those tools. Like, it's hard to beat those tools for, for what I'm chasing. That's something else that you got to realize. What do you want to achieve with your mule or your horse? What is your goal? For me... I want a mule that is really great out on the trail and it's really great on the ranch. Those are the things I need. I also like to pack, but I don't pack. I wouldn't consider myself a packer. I mean, I go on a couple pack trips there in the summer. Okay. You know, if I'm, I'm lucky to get two or three outings a year, you know, so that's less than three weeks a year packing uh you know other other than other than packing like salt and stuff which we did some yesterday you know pack some salt here and i don't really consider that like packing in okay so so like i said trail riding and ranching that's what i do that's what i'm into so what i'm trying to achieve here um you know, I want a mule that reigns really nice, handles nice. I like the power steering. I like the buttons. I tell you what, when you get a taste of these buttons, you you need more, okay? Every mule, every horse you ride, you, you want them to feel the way that really amazing animal felt. And I, and I feel a lot of people maybe just don't know what they don't know, and, and I don't blame you for that. A lot of folks that I work with have honestly never had a, a real chance to ride a finished bridle mule or bridle horse. They 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 don't even they don't even have a clue what they're missing. And some people I think well maybe it's safe that they've never rode a good one because they're riding their animal and and they think it handles good and you almost just want to say yeah just stick with that it handles great but when you know you know. If you get a taste of what it feels like to ride one with a good handle, everything else you ride, you you want to match that. You want it to feel you want it to feel the same. You really do. And that's why I work hard to build these bridle mules, to make these bridle mules, to get them operating so nice because I know what it feels like when they make that beautiful turnaround, when they stop so smooth. And they back up so nice and light. And when you can handle them, it, you ride one-handed, and you can pony that pack string. You can rope off of them. You can go uh, do a pattern and, and change leads if you want to go compete in a show or something. I, mean, I like the versatility, you know. And um, So when people come and they kind of question, well, why do you, why do you got to ride in a snaffle bit? You know, why do you, why do you start them in that? Why can't I just ride my stiff bit? Um, well, you can <laughs> here. You have that privilege or opportunity or freedom, whatever you want to call it. You have that choice to put them in whatever you want, but I haven't seen a better tool than a snaffle bit or a hackamore to build the lateral movements that I'm trying to chase. I just haven't. They, they just haven't, you know, I've seen, <clears throat> and I've seen all kinds of stuff. And, and honestly, uh, I've all, I've tried all kinds of stuff too. So I'm not saying it because I'm just like, uh, you know, 
a traditionalist, which I am a traditionalist. I'm not just saying it because of that. I'm not just saying it because, you know, I, I like what I use, which I do. But it's also because of experience, you know. So, anyways, uh, I did appreciate so many people. You know, when I showed up there, so many people in in a snaffle bit. I think only one person didn't show up in a snaffle bit, and they quickly changed their mind and and uh, went and got went and got one. And uh, uh, it was fun seeing so many people so interested in the process. Uh, amazing people. Um, and what's really cool is to see the progress over the years. Uh, one particular um, student there, oh, there's a couple that I want to mention. Um, uh, Vicki Lawson, she's from Western Washington, and uh, she's been riding tube socks, Trudy. Um, and this little mule, I've seen this mule from when she started this mule basically to now, and she's got the mule finally progressed to the hackamore. And it's fun over all these years seeing the progress and the change. And I'm not talking just the meal. I'm talking the human too. Talking Vicky, um, working how how Vicky has has matured and changed in her in her mealmanship journey. You know how she reacts, how she responds, how she even speaks to the meal, even how she just acts. She's changed a lot, and it's really amazing. Good job, Vicky. And Vicky was actually a guest on the podcast. Um, couple years ago or last year or the year before i can't remember um she was a guest on here you can listen to her episode as well the other person i got to give a shout out to i just have to is is yvonne um she's been working up there uh, getting her her horses and her mule just going good she's got a mule named taxi a horse named journey that i've been able to experience both of them and um you know, she works really hard and she puts so much effort and she really wants to learn. She's a great student. She's always learning and, and trying to be better. So if you're listening, Yvonne, out there, just I'm really proud of you. Great job. That journey horse is looking so good. And with this, it, it was fun to have this four-day clinic in Spokane. That We got farther than we usually get in Mulemanship 1 classes. We got pretty far down that list and and it was fun seeing the changes, uh, really fun. Um, and I wish I could just go through and, and talk about everybody individually and, and, and the the lessons because every person has a lesson. Every person got something out of this, and every person's story there was unique. And that's the fun thing about what I do is, is seeing so many different people working on their own little story, their own little journey with their horsemanship or their mulemanship, um, trying to, to get better. Um, so I appreciate everybody that came to Spokane. And big shout-out to Randy and Maureen Durheim there, Four Mound Prairie Bison Ranch. Speaking of bison ranch, since it was a bison ranch, uh, Randy gave us a tour out through the buffalo, and that was fun. Fun to see the buffalo. It's fun to see how the mules act towards those buffalo. Fun to see how they react to them and how they respond and, and what they think of them and uh, what kind of confidence they have. So, anyways, that was a highlight as well, for sure. Okay, well, let's jump into some some questions here from our amazing audience. So, question number one. Hi, Italian family. I discovered my horse is scared of harsh shadows when I tried 
leading out to the pasture after dark. It was a new moon, so I was wearing a headlamp on the lowest setting. He pulled back, but stopped right away. I turned off the headlamp, let him settle, and then continued on in the dark. I've never experienced this before, so how would you go about working on it? Thanks so much for the guidance. Natalie. Natalie's from Florida. All right, Natalie. Uh, so, um, scare shadows or scare the headlamp. I don't know. Uh, looks like maybe a little both here. Uh, first of all, I, I will just mention head headlamps because I get a lot of questions, especially around hunting season and fall about headlamps because so many hunters get up early, get out there early. They got the headlamps on, they go to catch their mules. They're trying to see, they can't see their mules are scared to death of the lights. Won't, don't want to leave, don't want to go. Um, so if you're gonna, if you want to get your animal used to the headlamps, first of all, try your best, never shine it in their eyes. Now we know the horse's eyes, the mule's eyes, uh, it, it takes them a lot longer than it does us to adjust to light changes. We, we know that it's much slower change for them to adjust. Now, once they do adjust, they generally have pretty decent vision in the dark um comparable to ours it's uh, probably better um uh but but it does take them a while to change that change their their eye to that light or lack of it so they do have a hard time when the moon's out or um you know if there's like street uh, maybe a street a, a street lamp, a, a street light or something on, and it's casting an odd shadow where you go from this light area into a dark, back into the light. They just, their eyes don't adjust near as quick as ours do. So that's what they're having a hard time with. So with the headlamp, don't shine it in their eyes for sure. Also, uh, go out there and, and feed early in the morning. Feed your meals early in the morning or late, in, late at night um, and let them see that headlamp bobbing around let them get experience seeing that that light change and it bounce along there. Um, and that experience will help get them familiar with it. Now, as far as just getting them, um, you know, to not pull back when you're leading, that really comes down to getting your leading skills pretty good to where that, you know, honestly, Natalie, where to get that horse to where that lead rope means so much more. If they're hanging back on the lead rope, you you lost a little bit of feel right there. And and uh, I, I really want my mule extremely sensitive to that much pressure. I don't, or my horse, I, I don't want them feeling like that uh, putting pressure on that lead rope is ever the answer. Hanging on the lead rope is never going to get them out of, out of uh, or, or help them feel better, I should say. So anyways, now that's a couple things I do get that lead rope to have more meaning. And you do that by building that good deal, building that response to the good deal. So, you know, you've, many of you have worked with me in the foundation class. I, when we work on clearing the front, for example, you, you pick up that rein and you kind of point that rein where you want that foot to go and you don't pull on it. You offer a slack rein and when they go, um, or, or say you pick up that rein and they're slacking it and you point where you want to go. If they move, you don't drive them. If they don't move, you come in there and you drive them with the tail end of your rope or your flag or whatever. That good deal has to expire. Um, 
so you want to get that as sensitive as you can. So that's the first thing, Natalie. The other thing is just get them familiar with your, just get them familiar with that uh, headlamp. You know, you got to practice that. It's hard to do just once or twice and see where it ends up. Okay, next question comes from Barb Vansel. First, I need to thank you for the video library and the online clinics. I don't know what I would do if I can't access them. I couldn't access them. I had Daisy going good with groundwork, and she would just go in the trailer. She would stand, then come out. I went camping last weekend, and I had to close the divider. No, Now I can't get her in again. She pulls like the mule in the online video. Sometimes I just want to quit, but I really like being with her. She pulls when she is scared. I wonder if I need to gradually put pressure on her to let her know it's okay. Anyway, um, yeah. Okay, Barb, good question. Uh, so what I would do, make that trailer a really amazing place. You don't have to do it by food or feeding them in there watering them in there or leading them in with another animal. You don't need to do that necessarily. Now you can, and, and sometimes that helps. Sometimes if I got a meal that's really just scared to death of even getting close to the trailer, like I'm dealing with a wild feral mule or something, um, I'll park that trailer in the middle of their corral, their paddock, if I can, and or back it up to it, the gate or something, and feed them in there, and I will have them get in and out for feed. So they'll, but the, the feed only has a small level of a small level of quality. Okay, it, it only lasts so long. It's not a, it's not your best choice for getting them truly learning. What really gets them to learn is having that trailer feel like the relief spot. That's the place to find all the relief in the world. So, I mean, one of the best ways to, to get them into a trailer, and especially, it won't take you long with this mule, Barb, because uh, you've already had it loading. So so what I'm about to tell you is really not going to take you much time, um, but you may have to do some repetitions of it to, to get this to really mean something. So what I do... If I could, I would put the mule in a round pen. Now, this is all best case scenario. You, you can, Barbara, you may have to improvise. But I'd, I'd get that mule in the round pen. I'd back the trailer up to the round pen gate. And um, I would have the gate closed at first. So I wouldn't have them going into the trailer yet. But I would basically just get that mule moving around. Walk, trot, lope, walk, trot, lope around the round pen. Just push, 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 push. And and go through transitions up and down, up and down. Don't just get them into one transition and hold it. I want transition changes. Walk, trot, lope, lope, trot, walk. Walk, trot, lope, lope, trot, walk. Up and down and down and up. And uh, then I would open that round pin gate. And the horse trailer gate is open so they, they can go in the trailer. And at that point, that's the first time I offer them a chance to stop. Up until then, they've been continuously moving. And that may be for five minutes, maybe for 10 minutes moving. I don't really know. Maybe even longer if they are really, really tough on this deal. But then I'm going to offer them a chance to rest just near the trailer, the opening, just at the back of the trailer, just rest. 
So that's the only place I'll offer them a stop is right there at the trailer. And then that's going to progress. And then I'm going to get them moving again. And um, hopefully they start to kind of investigate the trailer a little bit, seeking the way out of the round pen. And when they finally work their way into that trailer, by their own choice, by the way, I'm not like forcing them. I'm not like driving them in. I'm just easing off the pressure every time they get closer to it and then shortening up that deal until basically my question is to load up. When the meal's finally in the trailer, it's complete relief time. No work at all. I don't care if they're forward, backwards, sideways, whatever. Uh, standing in it. I don't care about that. I just want them to feel comfortable there in the trailer. So I'll leave them alone. And I let them stay in there as long as they want. And I don't ask them to come out. I let them come out of the trailer. When they cut, when they jump back out of the trailer, I will uh, go back through the transitions. Walk, trot, lope. Lope, trot, walk. Up and down, down and up. And again, get them back into the trailer. And again, let them rest. You might have to do t- five, ten rounds of this in a session. Basically, that trailer needs to be really, really desirable. That needs to be a great place to where they just want to stay in the trailer. And basically, I do that until you just about need to go up in there, put the halter on, and lead the the thing out of the trailer. So that's that's one thing I'd be working on. Now, the other thing, Barb, uh, you know, remember trailer loading is just uh, is just the application of your groundwork. So for sure. Your groundwork is not going up to standard if you're having a hard time getting them in the trailer. So go back to your groundwork. Check on those basics. It's not just loading uh, that is the issue. I'd almost guarantee that the mule maybe had a little discomfort in there, but that's not it. The the mule mostly doesn't want to lead, doesn't care to lead, doesn't think that leading is the answer. So I would for sure go back and get that going. Okay. I got a question from Autumn, and Autumn has been to many clinics with me. You know me and my animal Skipper pretty well, and by this point, I think I have a pretty good handle on what you teach and why. I can usually predict how you're going to answer a question. Anyway, here's mine. I have two, um, and I'll get to the question in just a second here. But basically the first one, I'd like to teach a different stop cue than we talk about in the clinics. Since stop moving as a halt is hard for me to understand and practice as a rider, let alone teach my animal. Can you talk a bit on methods in general, not just for the stop uh, and for and your experience with using them in conjunction with your process? What have you seen that does and does not work? So questions are about stopping. So what she's talking about here, you know, when I'm working on a flat stop, and I think that's what she's referring to, referring to as my flat stops, I want to work to where I just quit. And so I, I, I kind of sit down in my seat. I put my tailbone kind of down a little bit, and I put my heels down. That's what a flat stop is. That's all I do to ask for it. Okay, now I build that by various moves. You, you know, in the very beginning, you just work on quitting in the groundwork. You just stop directing them. So intention is is key for building a good stop because when you stop being intentional, they should stop moving. So I'm always thinking about when I'm when I want a mule to move, I'm thinking about where to send the animal all the time. Basically, they know to stop when I stop thinking about where to send them. 
Okay. And then this, so that begins the groundwork sessions and then it moves to the, the lateral stops in the saddle. And then it moves into where I work on the stops. I roll the hinds, roll the front and quit. And we've got a video on there on our online video library. Go to tsmules.com. And if you really want to get your mule stopping good, watch this video. It's called Helping Ruby Find a Stop. And it's on my online video library. And that utilizes the method of roll the hinds, roll the, roll the front, quit. And basically, it's helping that mule to, to, to read your body. If you want a good stop your mule, your horse has to be paying attention to you. they got to be tuned in to you or else it's just not going to work out for you. So that's one of the best ways to teach them. You know, the classic method that doesn't work is go out there and just work on stops. If you want to work on stops and you want to get your stops going good, don't stop. Move. Do a lot. Most people don't do enough. They get to the stop too soon. We, today in our semi-private clinic, I got an intern here, good boy, good man, good young man, Bentley White here, um, and he's he's asking me about stops. We were only out; we'd only been out there for ten minutes. And I said, Bentley, if you're working on stops this early in your session, you're way off the mark, buddy. You need to work your mule, and I wouldn't work on the stops until maybe a half hour, hour into my session. I'd be moving the first little while. So you got to get them ready to stop. That's a key. There is getting them ready to stop, and of course, just pulling back on the reins. Of course, that doesn't really get you a whole lot. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're relying on pain inflection to get your stop, uh, it's not going to last or hold very long. And there's all kinds of folks that do that and they use all kinds of gimmicky bits and junk and stuff to get them stopping. That's not a stop to me. That's a forced shutdown. And if that's your standard, well, you know, good for you. And, and now Autumn, that's definitely not her standard. I know Autumn very well. She's a good friend of ours and uh, she's not going to do that. But a lot of people like, I just want to shut that thing down. Okay. Well, use the pain, I guess, but the pain will wear out. You can get them to stop off of pain for sure. I've seen it over and over my whole life, but it, it doesn't hold. And that's not the stop I'm looking for. There's two, there's two parts to the stop. There's a physical part where the feet stop moving, but there's also the mental part. Is your mule really with you? Do they really want to stop? So getting them ready to stop is key. So autumn, that's how I do it. Groundwork lateral stops, roll the hinds, roll the front, build your stop, and then you work into building your soft feel. I love stopping off a soft feel. You pick up a soft feel, the walk or the trot, and you you change your body position. Now, of course, this means you've worked on that body position for the stop in those previously mentioned moves. But you just sit down while you're holding that soft feel, and it's a brilliant way to get them to stop for sure. The other thing is, you know, when you're building your stop, make sure you're making the stop comfortable. So many people will stop them and they slam them into the backup. They get them stopped and they go right in the backup. Now, I do like to stop and back up my mules for sure. That's not a bad thing. But making them back up to punish them for not quite getting the stop isn't isn't really going to help you a whole bunch. Um, I haven't seen any real success in that. Um, so make sure when you do stop them, in the very beginning, you just stop them and leave them alone. Give them a good chance to soak. That soak time is key above all of it. Make sure you give them that time to soak and relax. All right, here's the second question. 
You've said that you try not to tell people anything they're not ready to hear. Could you talk more on how you know they're ready for any advice you give outside of them asking for it? I don't know. I don't have any practical application for this right now, but it's something I've been curious to hear you elaborate on. Yeah, Autumn, for sure. Um, if I, you know, Autumn, it comes from reading people for all these years. You know, I, I can kind of tell when I can say something to you and you can handle it and or you can utilize the advice that I'm giving. That's the key. Can you use what I'm about to tell you? Can you put it to good use? I don't know how to tell you over a podcast how I can tell this. Um, also, uh, you know, I'm way better at reading the animals than I am the people. So a lot of times I'll tell somebody something and it's because the animal needs it right away. Um, you know, for example, and you've been to many clinics with me, Autumn, you've heard me tell people, hey, you need to do short serpentines right now. And they look at me like, why? I'm like, because you're about to get bucked off, you know. I mean, if I if I ever tell you guys to do short serpentines, any of you, <laughs> you just do it because you're fixing to get drilled into the dirt if you don't. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm trying to save you from getting dumped off your animal or something like that. Um, so, but of course, in that same scenario, if I saw the person wouldn't be able to handle that animal, I'd say, hey, go ahead and get off that animal. So I'd try to help them there, but. Trying to help somebody, giving them advice and knowing if they're ready to hear it or not. Um, a lot of it's experience, too. A lot of people, they've been riding with me for years. They know me well, and they and they have, they have legitimate trust in what I'm telling them. And I know they're going to care what I tell them. I know they're going to put to use what I have to offer them. Um, I'll tell them, a you know, give them a lot of information. So, and it's experience. How much does experience does that person have? If I'm talking, you know, I wouldn't talk to somebody that's brand new to mules and get to talking about all these soft field progressions and making a bridal mule and blah, 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 all this stuff when they're brand new. They don't even, they just learned what a mule was. <laughs> so, anyways. All right. Um, I appreciate you guys sending in these questions for sure. Um, Remember, you guys can send me questions anytime. Uh, my email is ty at tsmules.com. Put in the subject line uh, podcast questions, and I will try to get them on the show for sure. Um, and I got one more. It's a simple one um, uh, about hoof care. Hey, Ty, I wanted to reach out and ask you about some hoof care tips. I've been... Uh, I've been around horses my entire life, and I'm wondering if there's something different to watch for and look for on mule's feet uh, when you're trimming. So, so basically, uh, uh, and this comes from Tustin. Um, so I appreciate you uh, asking the question, Tustin. Basically, make sure on the mules they don't cut off so much heel. Most the average horseshoer cuts off too much heel. On the mule. If you go back a few episodes, listen to Nathan Hire's episode. Uh, he's a farrier, and we talked a little bit about this. But um, don't cut off too much heel. That's that's the main thing on the mule. Not so much heel. And remember, it's a more compact, precise hoof than that wide horse hoof. So it's it may be a little steeper than the average horse. Anyways, these are some great questions. Um, appreciate all of you. And uh, looking forward to 
answering uh, your questions next week. If you have them, again, you can send them to my email, tieattsmeals.com. And as always, I would love to hear what you think of this show. Please, if you listen specifically on Apple Podcasts, leave a review. Uh, leave five stars if you think we deserve it. I'd love to hear from you. Um, if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, if you listen on some other platform, Spotify or anything else, um, you can send me an email. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Uh, if you want more information on our video library, go to tsmeals.com. If you want to see information on our clinics, upcoming clinics, go to tsmeals.com. And right now, we're doing the semi-private clinic here at my place, and we have a spot open coming up in July. Go to our website, tsmeals.com again, if you want to come join us and ride with me here in beautiful Utah. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen. God bless you all, and we will see you down the road.